The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. You don't want it. You don't need it. But you're going to get it anyway. The Kevin Sheehan Show. Here's Kevin. Tommy's here. I am here today. Um, Sort of a hodgepodge of topics. Uh, One thing we are going to um, focus on is this athletic story that just came out about the court hearing uh, that took place yesterday between Snyder and his attorney um, and the attorney representing Jessica McLuhan, Scott McLuhan's wife. Um, apparently the McLuhan's may have been involved in the smear campaign as well, or at least one of the McLuhan's. Um, we're going to get to that because Tommy reminded me before this show about a letter that I received that was sent out by the team shortly after that first post story came out in July. So we're going to get to that. I will definitely get to um, Maryland um, and their loss last night. Sam Darnold apparently is on the trade block. Um, and the best dunkers of all time. There's a story out on uh, ESPN.com uh, listing the greatest dunker in the history of every team. So we, we'll get to all of that. I did want to tell you that my wife is scheduled for a vaccine. She has not been Good. able to schedule me. So to make a long story short, she's, she went through one of the area drug chains. All right. You know, there's Walgreens or CVS. She she went through Walgreens, and apparently um, her line of work and my line of work are now considered, I guess, to be a line of work that moves you up the ladder. You know, we're not in the ones, we're not in the 1A, 1B, 1C range, but we're in the twos. And I've told you before, you know, I can list asthma as actually a medical thing, which even though it's seasonal, it's still a risk. And apparently media members are essential. I don't know why we would be, although remember at the beginning of the pandemic, Tommy, when we got the letters, I got the letter that allowed me to go to work. Do you remember that? Yes, I do. I do remember that. CJ. You know, I didn't get any such letter. Well, you didn't want You weren't going to go to work anyway. You weren't going to leave your house. So it didn't matter. But at the beginning of the pandemic, because I was a member of the media, 
which, by the way, for whatever reason, they did not differentiate between irrelevant sports media members with, by the way, no sports going on, and the rest of the media that were probably more essential to communicating information about the virus, um, I got this letter from the radio station that I had with me, I, I don't even know where it is anymore, in the event that I was pulled over on the way to work. That's what it was like in the early days of the pandemic, where, where I would then show the letter to say, I'm an essential worker, here's my letter, I'm allowed to go to and from work. That's crazy when you think about it. Not once did I ever get pulled over, although I do remember, I mean, again, we're coming up really on the one-year anniversary of all hell breaking loose. Yeah. And yes, we are. Do you rem- I mean, the first several weeks after everything shut down, just how quiet it was. Nobody was out on the streets. People were terrified. They weren't going to work. They weren't going to the store. Um, And if they were going to the store, they were going, you know, masked up, you know, covered in stuff just to get, you know, paper towels and toilet paper. I remember going out to Target because nobody had toilet paper anywhere or paper towels. And all of the hand sanitizer stuff, that was all out of stock. God. Those first couple of weeks and months were unbelievable. We lived through that. And, and, you know, what was amazing was a couple of weeks after that started, I wound up in the hospital. I know. I it. had a gallbladder attack. Yes, I remember that. I had my that. gallbladder taken out, like, April 1st. Uh, and when I went into the hospital, most people were not wearing masks uh, in, at the hospital. Right. It's hard to believe. And when I left two days later, they were all wearing masks. Yeah. A- anyway, um, the somebody, actually, Neil in Rockville. Neil, if you're listening, Neil gave me the advice because Kara had tried to get online and get, you know, vaccine appointments. And, you know, every time she'd get through the process, there was nothing left. Montgomery County, by the way, I, I guess the state of Maryland, but Montgomery County in particular, is really having a difficult time um, distributing um, and vaccinating uh, enough people. I mean, there is much more demand than supply. Anyway, um, I'm glad, by the way, my, my, my father and my mother, the older people, the more vulnerable people in my life, you, I'm glad that all of you have gotten vaccinated. Um, I don't want to be in front of anybody that hasn't gotten vaccinated that should get vaccinated, but apparently now I am eligible. My wife is eligible. Like if we go online and we sign up for an appointment, we are eligible to get vaccinated. By, you know, by the way, being truthful, not stretching the truth by any stretch of the imagination. We haven't done that. She got So Neil in Rockville said, yeah, um, he got his first, I think. And he, I guess he's essential as an attorney. And he, um, he said the key is to get on at a certain time. Exactly at that time, there are a few appointments available every day. And if you hit it at that exact time on the Walgreens site anyway, you've got a chance of getting an appointment. So, Well, that's what we did in Florida. We, they said that at like 6 a.m. in the morning, yeah. it was going to open up. Right. And... And we did this a few times before we eventually, a couple of days before we eventually got through. But 
we woke up and at six a.m. we were pounding the keyboard trying to get on. Well, the seven a.m. is the is the is the call um, for the Walgreens thing, and yesterday she she didn't get it. Uh, um, I'm sorry. Yesterday she got her appointment. She was there. She got an appointment. She's got to go to Hagerstown. That was like the closest place. But she got the first, you know, appointment. She's going to go Saturday, and she'll get the first shot. And then she scheduled the second shot for, you know, a few weeks after, whatever it was. So then she went in and tried to do it for me, and it was too late. Everything was gone. So this morning she got up, and I'm on the air, so I can't, you know, do it as I'm doing the radio show. So she went online, and she said that she had the first appointment, and then when she went to put the second appointment in, the second appointment wasn't available. She went back, and the first appointment had disappeared. And then she kept trying, and it, it literally by seven oh one, all the appointments were taken. So yeah. I didn't get, you know, uh, we'll try again tomorrow. Um, but she's set to go on Saturday, and hopefully this will work, and I'll get one as well. Apparently, there are other tricks you know, out there that people have figured out. Like, you know, I had a friend of mine saying, just call this person. They'll take care of it for you. And I'm like, well, what does that mean? I don't want anybody putting in information that I'm 93 years old and I haven't been vaccinated. And, you know, I, because I've also heard when you show up for these vaccinations, they're not following up on any of the information. They're just giving you your shot. Is that what happened with you? They don't you? want to turn people away. Well, yeah, look, at part of our concern was uh, the, the uh, governor here was very adamant about Florida residents only right. getting the vaccine because people were rushing down to Florida to get shots. And, uh, you know, we, we, had, we didn't come here looking for a shot. We had been here since mid-December. Uh, and uh, so we were concerned about that. So wh- what we did was when we showed up for the shot, we brought a copy of our lease with us that showed, you know, at least we were there for, for almost three months. Uh, right. And that was okay. Once we showed them that, they they said okay. And uh, but but according to what the governor said, you had to live in the state at least six months a year. So they let us in even against what the governor's guidelines were. Kara met somebody. Because who wants to? Who wants to? Who wants to turn somebody away at the site? Well, it's one thing not to turn somebody away. It's quite another. People are saying that basically, you know. If you got through and you got the appointment, you're good. It's not like they're going to start verifying a bunch of stuff. They're not going to verify, you know, the information you put in. You can put in the information. There's no check on the information, and they're not going to do any sort of check when you get there. That's what I've heard. I've also heard that basically if you get on a plane and fly to Texas, I think it's Texas or maybe it's Nevada. I mean, obviously Texas has decided to go a completely different direction as it relates to the virus. My wife and I'm, I'm forgetting, it may have been Nevada now that I think about it, that basically there's so much vaccine there they don't know what to do with it. And so if you get on a plane and go to Nevada, you can get a shot right away if, if you really want one. I would prefer mine to come um, like, you know, within a mile radius of my home. That would be most convenient. <laughs> if I have to drive to Rockville, I'll do that. But um, anyway, uh, we'll see. Maybe, uh, maybe she's going to get hers, which I want her to get, and maybe I'll, you know, 
Maybe I'll have a vaccine shot here in the next week or two. You're, you, 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 that would you, be great. You had the the one thing that I've been reading about the vaccine shot, what, and this includes the new Johnson and Johnson as well, which I guess has a lower percentage, um, you know, um, efficacy rate, right? Uh, the than the Moderna and the Pfizer. But what I've been reading is if you get vaccinated, even if you are in that small percentage that end up getting COVID-19, you won't get super sick. That the vaccination That's what I've read as well. Yeah, that the vaccination may not be totally foolproof of you getting COVID-19, but it's pretty much foolproof of you getting sick, which is, you know, remember when we had the early conversations and I would say to you, vaccination's great, but the therapeutic is more important. Once people realize they're not going to die if they get COVID-19, we're back to a normal world. And in many ways, Tommy, and I know how many deaths there have been, I do. And I also know the percentage of deaths of people who had underlying serious illness or, you know, people who were over the age of 80. Um, so for, you know, most people, the chance of actually dying was minuscule, minuscule. Um, but I think once, you know, you had a therapeutic answer, and the therapeutics are much better around this right now. And by the way, the number of infections are falling, you know, significantly, which means the hospital, you know, issues aren't an issue as they weren't there for a while anyway and then they became more of an issue um but once people realize that they might get sick but they're not going to die then you're back to normal and the vaccination i guess is going to help with that as well just as much as the therapeutics are that's my point is that if you get vaccinated you might get it you know especially with the johnson and johnson which doesn't have the same you know percentage um that that the moderna and the and the pfizer does but if you're vaccinated, you're not going to end up on a on a ventilator. Oh, the vaccination for most people who get it is an ultimate form of security. It's almost an emotional experience for some. I know. Uh, there were some people who were crying at at the site when when they got it. They were so relieved of, of what they felt, of the stress that they felt for for almost a year. So. Uh, yeah, I mean, this is a, obviously it's a game changer. And uh, like you said, uh, it offers all kinds of protections. You know, look, by the way, I'm not bringing this up to um, to mark anybody or to make any sort of judgment against anybody. Everybody's different and everybody has their own circumstance and their own perspective. I do find it so interesting, though, how different, People, normal people, I'm not talking about crazy people, have treated this. You know, like I have two parents. I have a mother and a father. They're not married to each other. They haven't been for many, many, many years. They're remarried and have been remarried longer than they were married. My mother and her husband basically haven't left the home for a year. And she's a cancer survivor, and he's, you know, had underlying issues, and they shouldn't. They were vulnerable. They they were, you know what, it was truly gunning for them, as much as we joked yeah. around that it was gunning for you. My father's had a bunch of health issues as well. It's just, he just, I don't know that you would have ever noticed the difference between his life before the pandemic or during the pandemic. 
He played golf every day. He went to restaurants. You know, he wasn't an idiot. He wore masks when appropriate. He socially distanced, but he just never had the mindset that he wasn't going to continue to live his life. And I, I, I have friends of mine that have lived, a, a, one, a dear friend of mine, I'm not going to mention his, his name, from the beginning, the panic. And he had a son that was an emergency room physician in New York, and he was sending me updates. And I finally told him, stop sending me these updates. They're so depressing and they're terrifying. And he was convinced that basically everybody was going to die from the beginning. And, you know, he basically, until he got vaccinated recently, was a hermit for all intents and purposes. And then I have other friends who, you know, literally, it's not that they weren't, um, they weren't sensitive to others' feelings about it, but it just never once made, you know, had an impact other than, you know, damn it, where are the paper towels and toilet paper? Why can't I, why can't I buy some of this stuff at supermarkets? I think I've been probably somewhere in between, probably more on the end of, I'm definitely not going to be in my house hanging out for the next year or 18 months. Can't do that. Would have driven me crazy. Yeah. And plus, I, yeah, I, I get that. And I've had, and I have, you know, t- uh, teenagers and older than teenagers who were coming and going, and there was just no way that I could have them stop their lives. No chance. That would have been completely ridiculous given the, the you know, the, the l- super, like, unbelievable long shot odds that they were ever going to get sick. I still think that I may have had it already. I never have gotten the antibody test. But I told you that when this whole thing started, we were in Park City for a for a wedding. Park City ended up being one of the very first hot spots. New York, the the senior home in, in the state of Washington, and Park City, Utah, because it's a massive international ski destination. And it was February, and I was there for my niece's wedding. All of us were there. We got back. Kara was sick as a dog. Had it had you know, had Terrible cough, congestion, the whole thing. But this was like in mid-February, never thought about it. And then at the end of the, when it started to break loose, Park City was identified as a hot spot. Now, I never had any symptoms, but that doesn't mean that I didn't have it. I could have been asymptomatic. She never got the, she never got the antibody test. I never got it either. But, you know, I think she may have had it. And if she had it, it would have been pretty difficult for me not to have had it. Yeah. But anyway. Well, hopefully you'll get the vaccine soon. Yeah. I, I, can I tell you, though? I want the vaccine because I don't want to get it. And if I get it, I don't want to, you know, if I haven't had it, I don't want to get sick. I don't know that it's going to feel like a religious experience. I don't know that I'll break down in tears. Does that make me a horrible well, person? did I. Okay, good. I didn't. Okay. You know, but, hey. uh, I mean, it was a sense of relief, you know. But, like, you know, I look. Uh, we did certain, we made certain decisions. Uh, you know, we didn't eat indoors at all this whole time, but we ate outdoors a lot. Yeah. Uh, we traveled to beaches a lot, determining at least an evidence that we came up with that the beach was the safest places you could be. Fresh air. Uh, yeah. Air that was moving. So, uh, so, you know, we, we, we spent a lot of our lives outside uh, when we had to go in stores, and we did grocery shopping, 
we went with mass. Uh, you know, but uh, we did make adjustments in our behavior. The biggest one is no, no real indoor uh, activity of eating or. I mean, that's why we didn't go to uh, Austin like I wanted to this time. If after we left Destin, right? Because I I want to go to music clubs when I'm in Austin, right? You know, and that means a lot of indoor activity. And we would have only been a couple of days after the vaccine and. It worked out better. Sarasota's working out great. So, <laughs> yeah, Sarasota's awesome. It's awesome. Yeah. Subscribe, rate, review, please. Um, our uh, our uh, sales broker, um, our good friends at the Athletic, who do a great job for us, continue to ask me to remind everybody that if you have not rated or reviewed it, to do it. I have. Um, I know that some of you have said, well, that option doesn't exist, however you've, uh, you're listening to the podcast, and that's true. There are some formats that don't allow you to rate and review, but if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, um, they have a rate and review option there. And if you haven't done it, you know, rate us five stars, please, and then review us by just, you can write literally a one-liner. Love the show. Love when Tom's on. Love when Cooley's on. Whatever. Um, so, uh... So Kellen Winslow II is getting 14 years um, for the crimes that he committed. Where's this story? Here it is. Um, Former NFL tight end Kellen Winslow II was sentenced to 14 years in prison after being convicted of sexual offenses against five women in Southern California since 2003. Winslow, once the highest paid tight end in the league and the son of a Hall of Fame tight end, Kellen Winslow, appeared via video conference um, at a, a San Diego Superior Court, uh, the judge, Blaine Bowman, said Winslow preyed on women he targeted and that he can only be described with two words, and that is sexual predator. Um, he was convicted of forcible rape, rape of an unconscious person, assault with intent to commit rape, indecent exposure, lewd conduct in, conduct in public. So it got me to thinking, <laughs> this... Hey, you know what? Terrible thing. Lock him up. Horrible person. But it made me think of the 2004 NFL draft. This was Joe Gibbs's first draft when he came back to coach um, Washington. And this is one of my favorite stories that Clinton Portis has ever told me. And Joe Gibbs backed this story up. First of all, um, Clinton takes credit for the Lavernius Coles Santana Moss trade. If you recall in 2004, um, Lavernius Coles caught 90 balls, but averaged like 10 yards per reception. Didn't like the Gibbs offense, wanted out. Clinton knew that he wanted out, and Clinton knew that Santana Moss wanted out in New York. So Clinton walked into Joe's office and said, Lavernius wants to go. Santana Moss wants to go. Santana Moss would be phenomenal. He's better than Lavernius Coles. Make that trade. And they did. Joe said that, you know, Clinton was the one pushing for it. But the Kellen Winslow story goes like this. I've told it before, so for those of of you that have heard it, it's repetitive. But for those of you who haven't, um, I think think it's it's a great line from Clinton and a very interesting story. So Gibbs and Snyder and Vinny Serrato, they loved Kellen Winslow. That was going to be the pick at number five overall in Joe Gibbs' first draft. 
You know, they had added Mark Brunel, remember, in 2004. They had made the trade for Clinton Portis. He was coming in, you know, Champ Bailey and in, in a second-round pick for Portis. Um, they didn't have a, a really good tight end, and they they wanted a big-time tight end. And Winslow was a talent, Tommy. He was really a talent at, at, at the U, at Miami. Clinton got word that they were going to take Winslow at number five, and he asked to see Joe. And he said he walked into Joe's office, and he said, you can't take Kellen Winslow. You have to take Sean Taylor. And Clinton, being a Miami guy, knows all these guys. And yeah. he, did, he didn't have a great feeling for what Kellen Winslow was. That was number one. But number two, he just thought that Sean Taylor was going to be a superstar. And here's the line that um, that Clinton delivered to Joe, and Joe, you know, told me many years ago that this was true. Joe said, "Thanks, Clinton. Really appreciate it, but we really want to draft offense. And at number five, Winslow is going to be the best offensive player, and he's going to be a game changer for us in the whole thing." And Portis said to Joe, "If offense is the goal, then draft Sean Taylor. If you're trying to generate more <laughs> offense." draft Sean Taylor and Joe looked at him he said he will give you and the offense the ball and he will score in the NFL Sean Taylor's a better offensive player than Kellen Winslow is and you know what he was right he was right but it's funny because they you know they loved Sean but I think Clinton also probably had some other advice as it related to Winslow and so it was good advice. They took it. They drafted Sean Taylor. They passed on Kellen Winslow. Winslow had a few good years in Cleveland, had a, had a Pro Bowl year. Obviously, Sean Taylor was headed towards a Hall of Fame career. And the other part of this, too, is if they had taken Winslow, they would have never in the third round traded up to select Chris Cooley. Cooley would have never been a Redskin because they had a tight end need. They wanted a tight end, and they liked Cooley a, a lot. But they were planning on drafting Winslow until Clinton walked in and said, no, if you want to draft offense, the best offensive player you can draft at number five is Sean Taylor. So that was, uh, that was what made me, in reading the Kellen Winslow, horrible um, story about him. Uh, think about that, that Clinton Portis story. The other thing, too, Tommy, his father, I think he's the greatest tight end in NFL history that I've ever seen. I know you're going to say, I know who you're going to say, John Mackey. Of course you do. Yes. Um, and and I, I was looking at the, you know, the greatest tight end lists, you know, a bunch of lists that were out there. And some people have Winslow as the greatest. Mackey's in everybody's top five. The guy that I love to read when it comes to these lists, and by the way, he's a great follow on Twitter, is Gil Brandt the longtime general manager of the Dallas Cowboys. Do you follow him on Twitter? Uh, I don't know if I do or not. He's really, really good. I mean, he's – I don't know how old he is at this point. He's got to be in his 80s, I would think, the longtime general manager for Tech Schramm and the Tom Landry Cowboys. And he, he has these conversations all the time on Twitter. Well, he put together a list of the greatest tight ends in NFL history. Um, it looks like it was about a year ago, maybe two years ago. And number one on the list is Tony Gonzalez. Number two on the list is Kellen Winslow. And three on the list is John Mackey. He's got Gronk all the way down at number six. Um, And I think one of the underrated tight ends in NFL history, Dave Caspery, is at five. God, was Casper good. 
Yeah, he was. Jason Witten was four. Jerry Smith was not on his list. Was Mark Bavaro on the list? At Mark Bavaro was not on the list. Um, okay. So anyway, okay. Um, you got- know, uh, I mean, I, I was—I've been reading some of the stuff on Callum Winslow, uh, the second, and uh, you know, he made a plea agreement. It's not like he fought this in court. Uh, and uh, how many years did he get? Fourteen. Fourteen. It was the maximum, apparently. Well, no, apparently he could have sentenced, the judge could have sentenced him to as many as 18 years in prison. Okay. And uh, the reason that he didn't may be because they introduced, his lawyers introduced evidence that he may have been suffering from CTE at the time. I mean, look. The 14-year sentence was the maximum allowed, oh, under a plea deal, under a plea deal. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but according to the, the, the lightest sentence for his crime uh, before they made the plea deal was 12 years. That was the least he could have gotten. So, uh, look, it, these are horrible things. Uh, and, uh, I mean, I'm not saying he doesn't deserve to go to jail, but I'll bet you he's got some CTE going on in there. All right. Uh, before we get to our first break, I had Zabe on the podcast yesterday. If you missed that, um, it's a good listen. Uh, we had fun for about an hour yesterday. Uh, and um, as Tommy knows, you know, Zabe did one of those things at the end of the podcast where he said, hey, I have an idea. Zabe's always got ideas. Um, yes. <laughs> let's make this the first of a home and home series. Next month, you do my podcast, and then we'll continue once a month I do yours, you do mine, et cetera, et cetera. Zabe is the king of great ideas over the years, all of us that have known him, but how much follow-through is typically there, Tommy? Yeah, he needs a staff. That's what he needs. He needs a, a Zabe Ideas staff to implement some of these ideas. But he is the kind of guy who looks at a situation and thinks of, thinks of, he thinks of games and events differently than I do, at least. He sees things differently. He's a creative, and he's got yeah. lot. He's got lots of ideas. He would be more of the ideas CEO guy, but probably not the COO that's asked to sort of make everything happen. Um, but uh, but in all seriousness, uh, we'll, we'll probably do that. I put it this way: the back half of the first home and home will happen. It's going to be up to him, but I bet that one will happen. Um, and it was great to have him on yesterday. If you missed that show, it is available. I was just going to mention that um, I had Zabon. We never got to Maryland Northwestern, but if you listened to the radio show yesterday, you know that I didn't like it at all, that I felt queasy about it, that it, it felt like a trap game to me. The point spread was four, which reeked to high hell. Northwestern, uh, Maryland was the biggest public side last night on either the N- on the NBA and college um, slates combined. Um, no team had more public action on it than Maryland did last night, laying four at Northwestern. I had Turgeon on the, sh- on the radio show Monday, and I told him, Tommy, I'm like, Wednesday's a, a trap game. You know that, right? I'm like, people who bet the sport, and I bet the sport, this is a trap game. You got to have them ready. And he said, and he actually said, I know exactly what you're talking about. I know what a trap game is. I know what it, and he goes, it's going to be my job to have them ready, and I'll know in practice tomorrow. And apparently they did not have a good practice on Tuesday. I wish I had known that. Um, but anyway, I, I happiness, uh, happiness hedged it anyway last night. 
Um, you know, you can't. You do realize. I wish I had known that. It's got to be some kind of NCAA of violation. Of course, and right I would never, and I would have never put him in that position. <laughs> well, then don't joke like that. <laughs> I wish I had known that. Well, I do wish you I. You know had how known many that. people are saying? What's this? Is he getting inside information from the coach? He can't do that. I can say that I wish I knew that information, but then also say the truth, which is I would never, ever put him in that position. Um, But, uh, yeah, the um, it it just set up that way. And here's the thing for all, uh, you know, all of you idiots on the message boards. Um, This was not a terrible loss. It's a bad loss from a standpoint of they lost to a team and it's now, I guess, their second loss to a non-quad one team because Rutgers apparently now is a quad two team and they lost to them earlier in the year. Oh, by the way, when Rutgers was ranked. Um, but Northwestern is actually not terrible. Nobody in the Big Ten is terrible. Minnesota's terrible right now. They have quit on Richard Pitino, completely quit. They've had injuries too um, recently, um, but they've quit. Um, but I, I just knew... Going in there after the big win against Michigan State, tired legs, another travel game, feeling really good about themselves. Northwestern, you know, came is coming off a win. They actually are, you know, they after losing like twelve or thirteen in a row. A lot of them were close against good teams earlier in the year. They beat Ohio State, they beat um, Michigan State, and they beat. They were ranked Northwestern at one point in the season. Very early on, was a ranked team um, in college basketball. Um, and they're capable. They're not great, okay? I'm not saying that they're a great team, but almost every team in this league has has pulled off a couple of wins that you look at and you're like, well, you can't. They beat Ohio State and Indiana and Michigan State three in a row that put them in the top 25 back in December. Uh, but I just it, – it's a, it's a shame that they couldn't keep it going and win the game but not cover. You know, they were laying four. The books just needed Northwestern to cover. Northwestern went ahead and won the game 60-55. to Maryland did not play well. They, they um, were not nearly as good defensively. They were really slow in recovering off double teams, off in rotations. Um, those of you that, you know, tweeted out, you know, what kind of offense were they running at the end? I mean, they didn't even get good shots. You don't know what you're talking about. They got great shots. They got Eric Ayala with a wide-open three to give them the lead with 15 seconds to go against a 3-2 zone that they slapped on Turgeon there at the end, and he figured out how to get the ball to the short corner, which is uh, which was Morcel. He made the play. That's why Ayala had an open look. I don't know what you want out of that. Yeah, it'd be better to get you know Wiggins going to the rim, but they're in a they're in a 3-2 zone. It's not as easy as it looks. They actually uh, drew up a really good play in that in that timeout, got the ball to the short corner, which is the soft spot against that kind of a zone, and they, they got it to the short corner with the guy that can actually catch it and be aggressive, and he he made the play. He, he got the ball to Ayala, and Ayala had a terrible shooting night. He had a bad night. Scott had a terrible night. Wiggins was phenomenal, and Marcel played really well. This doesn't really hurt their their NCAA tournament bid. It hurts their seeding for at least a night. Um, they are firmly in the field. They were as high as a six seed in some bracketologies yesterday. Um, and they'll probably be back at like a nine or ten after the loss last night. And they play Penn State to finish up the regular season. I personally don't see any way they could play their way out of the tournament at this point, even if they were to lose to Penn State and in the first round 
round of the Big Ten tournament. I think they're in, um, but obviously they can really you know impact their seeding um, in the tournament. Um, but good run to to win the five in a row. That was going to be a tough spot for them last night. Anybody that understands this understands that this was a trap game. And for those of you that would say, well, you can't be an elite team losing those games. You're right. Elite teams don't lose those games typically, but Maryland's not an elite team. They're just a good team. And good teams have off nights in situations that can be difficult. And I knew last night was going to be tough. So if you're wondering, I did. I had Northwestern plus I actually bought it to five because it was at four and a half and I bought the half point. And I played the the, the uh, happiness hedge um, wager where I was hoping Maryland would win by one, two, three, or four points and I would win my bet and be happy that Maryland won. Uh, but anyway, um, there you go. Uh, that's it on the game. We'll have a couple of other things when we come back right after this word from one of our sponsors. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. So there was a story in The Athletic written by Daniel Kaplan earlier this morning. Tommy sent it to me. Um... It's uh, it deals with uh, another attempt by Snyder to and Snyder's legal team to get access to phone records um, in relation to this defamation lawsuit against this Indian website, New Delhi, India website. Um, this you know goes back to remember in July before the the original post story came out. All of the rumors, all of the internet speculation about Snyder, you know, being involved in sex trafficking, drug trafficking, Jeffrey Epstein ties, etc. Snyder believes that Dwight Shar may have funded this campaign. Recently, we learned that Bruce Allen um, is also a target of Snyder and his legal team um, as a source of some of this misinformation. And now we learn that Jessica McLuhan, the wife of former Washington general manager Scott McLuhan, is a target of Snyder and his legal team as well. Let, let me just read from the story to give you um, what went on yesterday. Um, the story written, again, by Daniel Kaplan in The Athletic. Since negative coverage emerged in July 2020 of Daniel Snyder, the Washington football team owner has gone through enormous legal lengths to ferret out the sources. 
There were unfounded and soon after retracted stories on an Indian website that links Snyder to sex trafficking and convicted pedophile Jeffrey Epstein. There was also a well-sourced expose by the Washington Post alleging a culture of sexual harassment at the team, which led to an ongoing NFL investigation and staffing changes at the club. Snyder's subsequent legal efforts span two countries, state and federal courthouses, and have largely been directed at the Indian stories, meaning the sex sex trafficking, the Jeffrey Epstein stuff, etc. The U.S. discovery requests are in fact legally tethered to the defamation lawsuit in India. But in a court hearing Wednesday, meaning yesterday, Snyder's lawyer muddied the distinction between the two reports, all right, the Washington Post report and then all the misinformation from the Indian website, muddied the distinction between the two reports and won approval from a federal judge to search the phone of a former team general manager's wife for her contacts with the Washington Post's three reporters who wrote the story as well for any correspondences with the Indian website. Quote, the Washington Post article came out within days of the articles, the defamatory articles in India, and the Washington Post article was equally, you know, disparaging, said Thomas Kreisa, the lawyer from Foley and Lardner representing Snyder. The hearing at a federal court in Colorado was on Snyder's request for more discovery on the phone of Jessica McLuhan, wife of Scott McLuhan. Snyder alleges she made 44 calls around the time of the July article to Mary Ellen Blair. Remember, Mary Ellen Blair has been tied to Dwight Schar. She was Snyder's uh, administrative assistant with with the team for, for many years. Snyder alleges that Jessica McLuhan made 44 calls around the time of the July article to Mary Ellen Blair, a former team official who the owner accused of working in tandem with at least one of his disgruntled limited partners to plant the Indian website stories. That would be Dwight Schar. Quote from Snyder's attorney. We believe that she may have been involved in a coordinated effort, McLuhan that is, to put out disparaging information about Mr. Snyder. Miss Jessica McLuhan's husband, again, was the former general manager for a number of years of the football team. He obviously has inside information about the operations, about the team, about Mr. Snyder, etc. The judge overseeing the discovery at first seemed perturbed by the consolidation of the requests into who was behind the Indian website stories with the information about the Washington Post story. And that judge said, quote, so the Washington Post reporter was calling around to get information. So what? And he at one point excoriated Snyder's attorney saying, your client has unlimited money, unlimited money, and hired a very good law firm and could spend a ton of money wasting federal judicial resources and imposing on a private individual to get into a very private issue, the phone records, who they talk to, who their communications are with, and so on and so on. I need some justification other than your client ordering a law firm to go out and do everything possible to inflict harm on people who used to work for him, who were relatives of people who used to work for him because he wants to go after some Indian website. But in the end, the judge did order McLuhan's lawyer to search her phone for emails and texts among her 
and three Washington Post reporters, and, for good measure, any from reporters in India. This was viewed as a compromise because Snyder had asked for a third party to do the search. By the way, her lawyer, Jessica McLuhan's lawyer, is a former NFL agent named Peter Schaefer, or maybe he's a current NFL agent, and he's a good friend of Scott McLuhan's. He called in to this discovery uh, uh, motion in court from the sidelines of a high school lacrosse game in which he was the coach. And he said to the judge, quote, the Washington Post articles are not disparaging. They're the truth. Okay, I always tell people all the time, the best way to keep people from saying bad things about you is to not do bad things to people. I wouldn't call them disparaging. I would call them the truth. And the Washington Post went out of their way to interview hundreds of people and came up with it. The fact that he doesn't like it doesn't make it disparaging. And I think you just really said it. This is just bully tactics from a billionaire just making people's lives miserable. Close quote. Well, that was the, the quote earlier in the story uh, from Snyder's lawyer, Thomas Kreisa, is the Washington Post article came out within days of the articles, the defamatory articles in India, and the Washington Post article was equally, you know, disparaging. So, I mean, that's that's not necessarily, as you have told us, what the organization said when the Washington Post stories came out, is it? No, it's not. But, I mean, the point that I made to you, because you and I had a brief conversation before, and I'll, I'll read this um, in a moment here, but the, 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 the fact that it, it was disparaging doesn't mean that it's not true. <laughs> I mean, it was disparaging, but it was also true. Not, not, not the Indian website stuff, the Post story. Right. So I'm not sure... What the point, they they were trying, look, if they were going after Jessica McLuhan, what pissed the judge off is that they were going after her for also being a source on the Washington Post story, which the judge deems to be credible and not defamatory, you know, whereas the website that spread all the rumors about Jeffrey Epstein, et cetera, that is what the judge believes, you know, may be worthy of some sort of, you know, investigation or some sort of legal, uh, you know, uh, ramification. But he, essentially what he's saying is you're tying the Jessica McLuhan search into the Post story, too. And her attorney right. saying, look, the Washington Post articles, they're not disparaging. They're true. And, and why can't, you know, uh, Washington Post reporters call around to sources to get true information to report on it? But you reminded me of something. Um, so I, I read this many months ago. Um, I had this sent to me, by the way, multiple people who are clients of the team who I know um, sent me a letter that the team sent out to all of their advertising and corporate sponsor partners um, and clients. And it was the morning after the first Washington Post story hit that had what? That first story, Tommy, had, I think, 18 women, 15 to 18 women. 15. Yeah, 15 women that had come forward and, and accused the organization of sexual harassment, etc. And then that was, remember, that story came 
um, on a Thursday afternoon. And from Monday on, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, there were all those rumors flying around on the internet about Snyder and sex trafficking, Jeffrey Epstein, etc. And this was what he believes to have been you know, he was, it was a smear campaign. It was a coordinated smear campaign, he clearly thinks. But in them going now after Jessica McLuhan for the Post story, it's interesting because the morning after the Post story hit, the following letter was sent out by the organization to their clients. And the letter read as follows. Good morning, the person's name. In interest of good communication, I am reaching out to ensure you saw yesterday's Washington Post article, which is attached. As you know from working with us, attached. we have, it's attached. Like they, they said, in case you haven't seen it, here it is, 15 women <laughs> accusing us of sexual harassment over a long period of time. As you know from working with us, we have solid management and leadership in place today. Solid HR talent, and we take this extremely seriously. As the article stated, we have also hired top-level legal talent to review our processes. While it is important to note that most of these issues were from several years ago, by the way, parenthetically, I'll add, that was a big part of the whole thing, right? Well, this was way back in 2008, 2009. Like, I'm sorry, what's, how is that relevant? Um, if it happened, it happened, right? Anyway, let me get back to the letter. As the article stated, we have also hired top-level legal talent to review our processes. While it is important to note that most of these issues were from several years ago, and none of the people involved are still employed. Well, they had just been dispatched, remember, Larry and others. Um, we have a very firm zero-tolerance policy in place, and we do not condone nor accept this type of workplace conduct. It is not representative of the very positive culture and collaborative work environment our team has been working so hard to build. And then here comes the best part of this letter, and I read it back then, and I just I couldn't believe what I had read. I know there was a lot of wild stuff flying around on the internet and, and, and on social media the past few days, and I assure you none of it is true. The attached post article is the only legitimate reporting on this matter. <laughs> we do hope we have the chance oh to... I wonder, if, I, wonder if the, uh, I wonder if the lawyers uh, fighting against Snyder in court know this, know about this. They should. We do hope we have the chance to work with you again this season. We hope to have some good news about our exciting future next chapter in the coming days. And that's signed by someone we both know very well, Louis Schreck, who is the senior, uh, who's the vice president of sales and marketing for the Redskins. And at the time, it's, he still had the Washington Redskins there as, as his sign-off. But to, right. you know, I remember bringing this, uh, you know, to the podcast and saying to you, this is the most hysterical thing of all time. They're saying, and this is why I said to you in the moment, you know, the, the, the smear campaign in many ways helped Snyder because it made the actual post story, which was bad, seem totally benign in comparison to Jeffrey Epstein and sex trafficking right. and drug trafficking. You're right. It's, it's really unbelievable. And they so, were so relieved about what wasn't published in the Washington Post that they sent it out to their clients. They sent the story out to their clients to, and told them, this over here, this Post story, this is legitimate reporting. The stuff that you heard flying around on the Internet, that was ridiculous. That wasn't true. That's not us. 
we are the sexual harassment, you know, the misogynistic culture um, uh, story. Yes, that's legitimate reporting. This is what we are. We're just not associated with Jeffrey Epstein. It is a wow. I mean, that, I'll be honest with you, like we've said many times, not the brightest bulbs on the bush. You know, no, you, but when you when you run a business like he did, you're not going to attract smart people. Yeah, it just um, you know, I look, I know I we know Lewis. Lewis was he didn't do that on his own. He was told to do that and told to sign it. I mean, d- look, that story the post wrote which, by the way, is a standalone story without all of the swirl of the earlier portion of that week. We would have all, you know, our jaws would have been, you know, like, oh, my God, are you kidding me? But we were all looking for the, the Epstein tie. We were all trying yes. to read it looking for the drug parties and the sex trafficking. We were looking for the, you know, we were looking for the thing that was going to hang him. It's just, so, it's just so stunning. How about it's, Jessica it's McLuhan? So stunning. Over the years, I mean, I mean, it's you know, you know, it's funny. In, in a lot of these organized crime uh, movies and, and TV shows, you always see, like you see in The Sopranos, a chart on the wall of the FBI with photos of all the family members and like the hierarchy. I mean, imagine putting together a float chart for this Washington football scandal <laughs> yeah. of all the people who are involved in this. You know, and the different directions the web goes, you know, and names that pop up uh, in, in this. It's just, it's just remarkable. I mean, rem- I mean, look, because I, I love Diana, um, but just remember the Jess- Jessica McLuhan, you know, social media tweet oh, yeah. storm against, uh, against yeah. Diana. I mean, yeah. that was, that wasn't that, that was Scott's first summer here. I mean, yeah. I mean, you talk, yeah. I mean, I love, I have to tell all of you, if we haven't said it before, Scott McLuhan truly was just the nicest person. He really was such a good dude who obviously had many, many issues. And I hope he's doing well. I had him on the podcast, like, you know, it was, it was last year uh, before the draft. I think it was either right before the draft or right after the draft. And he's such a good guy. Um, and he's obviously fought, you know, a lot of demons, you know, he's had, you know, addiction issues. And so, you know, I, I just, I always hope that, that he's doing well and that he's healthy. Um, but my God, wherever he went around here, it kicked up a lot of dust, you know, everything. I mean, he, he was involved in so much from, you know, some of the draft choices and, you know, um, you know, the, you like that as Kirk walked off the field and pointed at him. To, you know, the wife with, you know, some ESPN people. And it was just a lot. There was a lot of action with the McLuhans. A lot of action. Yes, there was. <laughs> yes, there was. And I've always maintained that Bruce Allen, uh, after the winning off-the-field press conference, uh, was pressured to hire a general manager. So he hired the guy he knew who would fail. That wouldn't be a threat to him. You know, remember when we interviewed Bruce after they hired Scott in our studio at Redskin Park, and we both asked him, I forget who asked the question, it was probably you, you just said, will Scott have final decision-making authority over the roster? And he said yes. 
And then I think we asked him the follow-up question, which was, will he have final say over the head coach? And Bruce was like, he turned almost beat red, like he was angry that that question could be asked. Because remember, everybody wanted Bruce not to have anything to do with the football operation anymore. We wanted somebody to come in that was going to be a savior on the football side of the operation. And he, to his credit, said, no, that, that, that will be Dan and me that will make that decision. He was, he, it was almost like he was staring right through us saying, are you guys out of your mind? I mean, this dude's, you know, th- this dude's really just a glorified scout. I can't say that, but no, he's not going to be. And Scott, right from the beginning said, basically, you know, I'm going to be really in charge of the draft, which I think he was for, you know, a few years. Um, and that didn't go particularly well. They no, got, it didn't. You know? Uh, but anyway, um, I don't know where this goes here. I don't know, like, I, if, if he's – I have no idea what to believe. I, I, do, I don't believe that he was tied to any of those people. So whoever, whomever put that information out there is going to pay in some way whether it's some sort of civil case or something worse. You can't do that to somebody. You can't tell people that you have ties to Jeffrey Epstein and sex trafficking in an effort to get the NFL to to, to force him to sell the team, which, by the way, when you think about it, Tommy, wouldn't the NFL have done their own investigation into the whole Jeffrey Epstein thing before they just said, hey, you're going to sell the team? Like, sure. I I wouldn't... I wouldn't. Have, well, maybe they would. Yeah. I mean, my point is, do you, you think, think so. don't do you think Dwight Shar? I mean, obviously, maybe they were pissed off and they were like, "Hey, that's this sounds like a good idea." But did did he really think that ultimately it, it that fake stories would lead to him forced being forced to sell the team? Not gonna, you know, they're gonna flush those stories out somehow. You would think so, but again, all the, what what a part of what this shows is what, how people despised Dan Snyder, who came into contact with him. No doubt. Who, who, who he, wasn't, he wasn't glorifying. Non-players. Non-players. Yeah. Okay, he always treated the players differently. Yeah. There's, there's no question about it. I mean, yeah. we've both been told many times they would – they they do not want him to own this team anymore. He is an embarrassment to the league, um, and there he's not really influential in, from any st- you know from in any degree when it comes to no. the league. Um, so anyway, well, what else? What else do we have? What else did I promise to get to? Oh, I wanted to tell you real quickly um, about my conversation with Randy Whitman this morning on the air, and I'll do that right after this word from one of our sponsors. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? 
Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. So this morning, um, and I would urge anybody to go listen to it, you can listen to it uh, at theteam980.com. I had Randy Whitman on the show. I like Randy a lot. I've liked Randy a lot. We've had conversations on and off the air over the years. I, I think he's a really good coach. I mean, I remember during those years, Tommy, when a lot of people in the media would say he's not a good coach, and I'm like, you guys don't know what you're talking about. Talk to coaches in the area. They know Randy can coach. I'll never forget walking out of Capital One Arena one night, and I ran into JT3, and we started talking, and he said, do you see, you know, he started talking about the plays that Randy Whitman was running in the uh, last second situation because the game went to overtime. And he said, I- I'm, re- I- I've- I'm now recording his games. I record his games. I use so much of his stuff. He's so good. And other coaches had told me that along the way. Bottom line, though, is great X's and O's, but, you, you know, you got to have a certain level of relationship with your players. Um, it's a players-run league. We know that. Anyway, to make a long story short, um, we talked a lot about, you know, the, you know, the ascendance of Bradley Beal. And he said, I never saw a scoring champion coming. He said, Bradley didn't have a lot of confidence, believe it or not, as a young player. That was my challenge. My biggest challenge was to build his confidence. He said, John, on the other hand, had plenty of confidence. And, you know, and Bradley, I could tell, was going to be a very good scorer. He just needed to grow from a confidence standpoint. John thought he was already there and wasn't, but he never lacked in confidence. Anyway, um... It was a good conversation about you know those guys, but I started off because you know a lot of people know this, you know this, but I'd never really had a conversation with him about his days of playing in the NBA. First of all, he played on a national championship college team, was a first-team All-American at Indiana, played on that team that beat North Carolina in the 1981 uh, NCAA Finals at the Spectrum in Philadelphia. That was the day that Reagan got shot, remember, and they went ahead and played the game that night anyway. Um, and then, you know, had a long career in the NBA and was a part of those Atlanta Hawks teams that featured Dominique Wilkins. And he played, actually, in one of the greatest NBA playoff games of all time, the showdown between Dominique Wilkins and Larry Bird in Game 7 of the conference semifinals in 1988. Uh, Wilkins had 47, Bird had 34, but the the back-and-forth, possession-by-possession in the fourth quarter is one of the great you know, individual one-on-one pressure game situations you'll ever see. It's on YouTube. It's just an incredible seventh and deciding game. Well, the second leading scorer in that game for the Hawks after Neek's 47 was Randy Whitman's 22. He had 22. (laughs) He was was 11 for 13 from the floor. I asked him, I said, do you remember your, your stat line? He goes, yeah, he goes, I think I was 11 for 13. I go, yep, you were 11 for 13. <laughs> you had 22 points. And, you know, on that team was Glenn Doc Rivers, <clears throat> Tree Rollins, you know, former coaches in, in Whitman and, and Rivers, obviously. But I, I asked him about Dominique Wilkins. You know, he was a teammate of, of Dominique's for several years. 
because I, in my conversations with my boys, my sons as an example, when they start, you know, trying to tell me about Kobe and LeBron versus Michael and Magic, and those arguments, Tommy, happen all the time. And, you know, their generation is, they just kind of, they kind of giggle and laugh. Yeah, okay, right. Magic was as good as LeBron or Kobe, right. And, you know, you end up having those generational arguments. But the one thing that they've always been convinced of is several years ago, I said, I just want you to go watch Dominique Wilkins, the the human highlight film, and watch the dunker that he was. And that got their attention. I'll never, I'll never forget it because Dominique, the, he was unique. He dunked like guys today dunk, like Zach Levine. Like he has the leaping ability. He had a 44, 46-inch vertical. He was 6'8", 210. But he was the first guy, really, and I know you'll say Dr. J, and Dr. J was a different dunker. And actually, um, Randy Whitman said the thing about Neek is he was a two-foot jumper, not a one-foot jumper, which makes it even harder. Like, Dr. J was a one-foot jumper. Like, he would come down, take off of one foot, and glide through the air, and he had those long arms and those big hands. And he was the original highlight reel, obviously, from the ABA days. But Dominique Wilkins was the first guy, really, where his head was above the rim. When he was dunking, he was dunking so on top of you and over you and through you that it was just incredible. And I I consider Dominique to be the greatest dunker of all time. I mean, in, in, in terms of that era. And I've always said that, that there are two guys from that era that if you put them into 2020 or 2018 or whenever we've had this conversation – they wouldn't look any different. Carl Malone wouldn't look any different physically because he was 260 before, you know, before 6'10 and 6'9 and 260 was a thing. And Dominique Wilkins, there isn't anybody athletically, Vince Carter, you know, Levine, any of them that were at, any more athletic than Dominique was. And anyway, Randy Whitman agreed and he talked a lot about, you know, Wilkins being a two-foot jumper and how the, the hang time and how he could double pump, you know, and bring the ball down. It was amazing what he could do. Anyway, I bring it up because ESPN.com today did a story from Jordan to LeBron, our experts pick every NBA franchise's greatest dunker. And they basically go, um, you know, in or, uh, alphabetical order. And the first name is Atlanta Hawks. Dominique Wilkins got 95.8% of the vote on, you know, the greatest dunker of, of all time for the Hawks. And it just says, Wilkins double-handed windmill in the finals of the 1988 dunk contest. He lost controversi- uh, controversially, uh, dubiously um, to Michael Jordan. Might be Neek's most noteworthy dunk, but his most potent weaponry was discharged in live games. And this is true. Few could unleash an electric dunk in traffic quite like Wilkins. And his signature double pump while jumping off two feet among the trees was a marvel of body control. A true spectacle when he got a running start and gussied up the double pump with the reverse. He was... He was was great. He was the human highlight film. That's the best way to describe him. Do you remember who the Wizards' bullets best dunker was? Did they say on in the in the story? Do you know? Yeah, I don't want to look at it yet. I want to think about it before I look at it because it's the last team listed, and I have not scrolled through it. 
Okay. Um, because it's actually... Because I'm betting for the Knicks, it was probably Nate Robinson. Won the NBA dunk contest three times, and he was five foot nine. Kenny Walker and Nate Robinson tied. Kenny yeah. Skywalker. Okay, I... Yeah. Um... God. You know, John Wall. John Wall won the dunk contest. Uh, but I'm trying to think who else on in dunking. Hold on, I'll scroll down and find out. John Wall, 62.5%. Oh, JaVale McGee. Okay. JaVale McGee really, I mean, he was ridiculous. Yeah. He was ridiculous. Um... Yeah, Wall got 62.5%, JaVale McGee got 20.8%, and Chris Webber got 16.7%. So, yeah, Wall, yeah, you know, the truth is the Wizards haven't had a lot of human highlight reels, you know, athletically in terms of dunkers over the years. Uh, The players that got 100% of their team's vote were Vince Carter, Toronto, Sean Kemp, Seattle, um, which makes a lot of sense, by the way, because Kemp was very similar to Neek, the difference is is that Kemp was six eleven, Neek was six eight. Like you know, Kemp was much more of a of a big dude. Believe it or not, for the Nets, uh, uh, Doctor J got for the 76ers, Doctor J got sixty two and a half percent. Daryl Dawkins got thirty seven and a half percent. Well, Daryl Dawkins, yeah, that's used to break the backboards. Right. Uh, let me see if there was another hundred percent guy. For an organization, what about Daryl Griffith, Michael Jordan, one hundred percent for Chicago? There you go. And Julius Irving was also number one for the Nets organization, which which goes back to the yeah. ABA. Um, I think that the greatest dunker for me is Dominique Wilkins. I think he's the greatest dunker I've ever watched, and I've mentioned this many times. I think that Len Bias would have been Dominique Wilkins. As a highlight reel, as a dunker, as a player, you know, I've always said that his, you know, Bias's game was much closer aligned to Dominique Wilkins's game than it was Jordan's game. Len Bias was not a was not a shooting guard, was not a two, didn't play the two. He was a three or a four, you know, as Neek was. Michael Jordan was a two guard. They were different. Bias didn't have the same handle Jordan had. Um, but Bias had, uh, you know, actually was a better pure shooter than Michael ever was. And Michael became a great pure shooter. Bias would have been, uh, you know, Bias would have been the next Dominique Wilkins, really. You know, or he, well, he would have played against Probably. Dominique. He would, I mean, he was drafted in 86. Yeah. Dominique played well into the 90s. So, um, yeah, uh, he to me is the is the greatest dunker of all time. David Thompson's number one for Denver. David Thompson was quite the dunker. That's no, that's not surprising. Yeah. And David Thompson was six three, six four. And by the way, uh, yeah. Randy Whitman mentioned he said, "Don't forget, Spud Webb was one of my teammates too. He won the dunk contest at five eight, <laughs> and he did. And it, there's something that's always been spectacular about the little guy, <clears throat> like like Nate Robinson. You know, three times. Yeah. Who's who, who? When the the little five guy? Five nine. What'd you say? He was five foot nine. Yeah, yeah. All right. What else? What did That's we talk? What, today, what did we talk about today? I don't even know what we talked about. Oh, I did want to say that the Jets are making Sam Darnold available, according to reports. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Let's so, get him. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know what they're gonna do. 
Um, the uh, I, I, I actually one last thing. I'll just mention this real quickly. Kyle Rudolph got released by the Vikings yesterday, and in Minnesota, he wrote this long thank you letter to Minneapolis because he's one, you know he's one of the great players in that franchise's history and very well liked and well respected. Um, and he said he wasn't going to mention players' names, and then he started to mention players' names. And he mentioned Teddy Bridgewater, a quarterback that he played with. He mentioned Sam Bradford and actually said that if Sam Bradford had been healthy in that 2017 team, the one that Case Keenum quarterback, that they may have won the Super Bowl, which was kind of a slight to Case Keenum. Uh, he didn't mention Case Keenum's name. He mentioned Matt Castle's name. Matt Castle was on the roster, said one of the great guys he's ever played with. But uh, very, um, uh, you know, sort of ob- obvious by his absence in mentions was Kirk Cousins. He didn't mention Cousins' name at all. And so there's a lot of discussion in Minneapolis about why, you know, and they think it was a slight towards Kirk. And, you know, a lot of people responded by saying even Stefan Diggs, who everybody thinks had big issues with Kirk Cousins, he actually had much bigger issues with the offensive philosophy. That's why he wanted out of Minneapolis. That's now been well documented. His issues with Cousins, there were blowups in games like there always are. But when he was traded, he actually also wrote a, a Players' Tribune story, and he talked about how much he enjoyed playing with Cousins. But Kyle Rudolph, who caught more touchdown passes from Kirk Cousins than any other quarterback he ever played with, didn't even mention him. And so today, and the reason I bring it up is there was apparently a lot of discussion about this, um, along with, you know, some of the rumors recently that Kirk could be traded, that, you know, Kyle wanted him badly and and the Vikings could sort of take advantage of this heated up quarterback market. Um, and Mike Zimmer um, came out uh, late last night and and basically just said, there's no chance. Kirk Cousins is our quarterback going forward. Um, there's no talk of trading him. Zimmer did that before, um, but Rick Spielman, the general manager, also um, you know, said it uh, as well, saying, I know there's a lot of rumors floating around out there, but Kirk Cousins is our quarterback. We felt that he played very well, probably the best that he's ever played down the stretch last year. He's our quarterback going forward, and we look forward to having him another year in this system. I'm excited for him and what he's going to bring to our team next year. But anyway, um, look, you know, I'll, I'll tell everybody, he's never been the most popular player on any team he's been on, including the team here. You know, Cooley would always say he just wasn't one of the guys. You know, he is different. He's more reserved. He's, you know, very much into his, you know, preparation. And he's not like one of the dudes. And that's, you know, for some people, that's criticism. Um, They also will tell you that the one thing they'll never, ever get from Kirk is he will never blame or throw anybody else under the bus when it's someone else's fault. And so he's always been respected for that. But I remember hearing from various people here that, you know, he wasn't the most well-liked guy in the locker room. You know, but a lot of great quarterbacks haven't been um, the most well-liked. A lot of Hall of Fame quarterbacks like Kirk haven't been well-liked in the locker room. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's great. (laughs) 
Um, but I, it was, it was. I'll, I'll tell you what. The, the, just like it was here, there's so much talk about him all the time, and it's a totally split fan base. Some say, "My God, we couldn't do better." You know, why would we? Tr-? You know, or if we tried to do better, we'd do a lot worse. You know, he's he's been good. He hasn't been the problem. The defense has been the problem. Yada yada yada. And then half of them have the same feeling a lot of the fans here did, which is. He puts up big numbers, and he's okay. He's decent, but he's not going to win you a Super Bowl. And so the Rudolph thing, um, the lack of mentioning Kirk, really uh, gave rise to that discussion in Minneapolis yesterday, forcing them to come out and say once again, Kirk's our guy um, uh, a few hours after the fact. Uh, All right, I'm done. Uh, I do want to mention real quickly, MyBookie at MyBookie.ag is offering – uh, a deposit match of up to 50% of what you put in. So if you put in 1000 bucks, you open up your account using my promo code, KevinDC, they'll match your deposit halfway um, up to 50%, all the way up to it. Uh, they'll match your deposit 50% all the way up to 1000 bucks. Please, if you're betting and March Madness is going to be a big deal for you with the tournaments, conference tournaments are starting this weekend and next weekend, and then the actual NCAA tournament um, is two weeks from today. Uh, two two weeks from today, yeah, two weeks from today, we will be in that first you know round of sixty four Thursday Friday games. And if you're betting, even if you have a site, you should use my bookie as as a backup site. You'll get free money for starters, but use it as a way to compare point spreads. You know, I mean, if if you get a first round game between Ohio State and and uh, you know VCU and Ohio State's laying eight, and you like VCU, maybe my bookie's got it at nine or eight and a half. I mean, that half point, that full point can make a big difference. So go to my bookie at mybookie.ag, use my promo code KevinDC, and they'll match your deposit halfway up to $1,000. All right, Tommy, um, the next time Tommy and I talk, it will be a discussion in part about the anniversary, the 50-year anniversary of the single biggest and most important sporting event. Most important, maybe not. The single most hyped and electric sporting event of the 20th century. Is that a better way to describe it? Because it wasn't important necessarily. Right. Absolutely. And that is Fraser Ali 1. Uh, but we'll be, have a lot more. Uh, have a great day. I'm back tomorrow with Tommy.